hey, this is Richie coming at you from the School of Marketing HQ. Before you dive into the show, I just want to tell you about a brand new short 12-week program we've launched called the Giants Marketing Masterclass. The program gives you access to insights and expert comments from over 25 CEOs and CMOs from major companies like Unilever, L'Oreal, M&S, Pret, and WPP, just to name a few. We focus on six key areas of marketing, customer, brand, commercial, creative, channel, and data and analytics. So if you were looking to upskill yourself or your team for just two and a half hours each week and get access to a network with our industry's giants through our live sessions, do check out the School of Marketing website for more deets. Alrighty, for now, enjoy the show. Good morning, everybody. Hope you're all getting set for the holidays coming up soon. Only a couple of weeks to go. I tell you what, I cannot wait to have a little bit of a break um, from what has been quite probably an insane year. But look, for today, we've got an absolute fabulous guest with us and a legend in his own right. John Wilkins is the current Global mark, mark, sorry, global Managing Director um, of the Creative Council at Accenture Interactive. Prior to this, he was also the Chairman of Karmarama, and he brings an extensive experience of leading and building teams. But look, today is all about getting to know the man behind the scenes, what makes him tick, and how he was able to foster an amazing career and really become a global leader in his own right. So John, it's with absolute pleasure that I welcome you to the show this morning. It's super to have you on with us. Many thanks. It's absolutely wonderful and an honor to be here. So thank you. Absolute pleasure. Well, Mark, over to you for the first question of the day. Thanks, Richie. Hi, John. Fabulous to have you on. Um, let, let's let's uh, get going with, with uh, the obvious question. How has 2020 been for you, John? It's, it's been a year of ups and downs, I think, for everybody. I mean, you know, there's, yeah, I mean, it's been a time where, you know, you've certainly connected with things, deep feelings that you possibly haven't connected with for a long time, thinking about mortality and hope and the future. But, you know, the positive would be there's obviously been a lot of time for reflection and a lot of time for thinking about what's important. So, you know, out of every pig of a year comes a little bit of a silver lining, I guess. And and so, John, tell us, you know, you're clearly in a global role, um, you know, managing a range of different agencies as part of your, your role at Accenture. I mean, how has that been for you? How has that changed? How has that evolved and adapted over the last couple of months? Well, I guess the, the wonders of uh, devices like Zoom and Teams have kept us all connected. But, I mean, you know, definitely missing... Um, you know, travel, I think like travel is a hugely underrated uh, commodity and, and doing everything digitally has not been as much fun. And so actually I was thinking about talking to some learned friends about travel and I think travel, because it takes you out of your comfort zone, literally, <clears throat> um, it just forces you to reframe everything from, you know, the roads, the people, the culture, the food. And I think it's very good for the soul. So even though I've kept in touch with all my colleagues through you know, Australian Zooms in the morning through to American and Brazilian Zooms at night. Um, you know, I've definitely missed uh, the experience of actually hanging with them, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, I've, I've only been to the office a couple of times, but yeah. it's always felt indulgent to commute, whereas I used to absolutely bloody hate it. But so, you know, it's, as you say, sort of getting out of this, yeah. this rectangular world that we are occupying. Mm. But, but I mean, you talked about Zooms with Australia and so on. I mean, the, I think it's become a relentless 
period of time. Yeah. And particularly, I guess, if you're in a, a global role. So just how, how have you sort of managed to keep any sense of balance through this period? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. I think like there's two sides to the balance. Obviously, your home and personal life. Like today, I had a shower, took my pyjamas. Sorry, wrong way around. I didn't have a shower with my pyjamas on. I took my pyjamas. had a shower and then I'm staring at you, Mark, which is unusual, you know, is a sequence of events. But I think there's a little bit around, um, you know, for me, thinking time is a very important part of my job. And what I've noticed, and I think this is probably true of a lot of people, that uh, the ability to digitally connect means in some ways we're filling our days literally filling our days with uh digital um meetings and i've I've found that disappointing and really hard and i've realized how much that thinking time the gaps in between is where sort of ideas develop where spontaneity happens so that would be obviously one observation then the second one you're absolutely right is where do you stop and start i mean i've sort of tried my hardest to balance but it has been very hard I mean the only thing I've discovered which I never did but I'm really excited about is the afternoon nap I've uh, if I've got a little gap between two and three I quite often now just put my head down for 40 minutes set the alarm and it's an incredibly refreshing uh, moment where you just get a quick uh, bit of respite but it is hard it's definitely hard John, yeah. that sounds very much like a confession more than anything else that's, that's yeah, I'm happy with that yeah well, you, you're, you know, you're synonymous with creativity. And one specific question I had is, you typically, creatives work as pairs sure. and sort of share, really share each other's lives. They're very, very often very close. Yeah. yeah. Um, and something is lost in this digital interaction, sure. some of the magic. So do, have, have you found that creative pairs have, have struggled more than others as a result? Well, that was our, ori- our original hypothesis was that that was going to be the case. And uh, probably, you know, we monitor and review how everybody's getting on just generally all the way through this. And actually, um, the creatives are also generally like their own space and time. And it's, uh, you know, it's it's a pursuit where, you, you, you know, your own company is actually really good for the development of ideas. So actually, bizarrely, the creatives have found this fine and actually sitting in an office with a lot of disruptions and people tapping on the shoulders actually stops your flow one thing we thought in an agency structure that was going to be fine which hasn't been is you know just that regular dialogue with people like you mark you know i mean client interaction even though you can do it like this you know we spend a lot of time literally rubbing shoulders with our clients and you sort of build your capital through the relationships you develop and that is much harder actually not because you're jollying or doing you know but it's just much harder sometimes talking to a client team of 10 people where four cameras are on six are off you're trying to judge the mood you know normally if we were in a room with a client you know if somebody's not with you you can see they're not with you and you can bring them into the conversation so we've actually found managing clients well-being and it is harder than actually developing the creative if that makes sense Let's take a step back there, John, for a second. And perhaps you can tell us a little bit about your career and how you can join the dots as to how you were able to achieve what you have to this point. Yeah, I mean, I don't see, you know, my life as an achievement. I see it as an ongoing journey. But I guess I've always um, wanted to explore sort of new things. And my love of sort of communication probably started at a very young age when I think about it. I've always been interested in music and culture and um, and sort of just how people engage with stuff. Uh, I did a degree in social science. I decided I wanted to become a researcher in uh, 
TV shows. That was my original dream. So I applied for many jobs, got turned down by most of them. But I finally got a job at Granada TV as a program researcher. Um, and in that department of research, there was program researchers and also marketing researchers. And I actually liked the the fun of the marketing side more than the programming side. So I ended up drifting that way. And then from there went to um, NTV Europe when it first launched, uh, which is amazing. You know, the launch of the pop video that ages me significantly, but that was um, um, in marketing and research and then moved to Disney in marketing. Um, and so sort of went quite a long way in content and media marketing. And then I had a moment where um, I got, a call saying, do you want to go into advertising? I didn't, you know, we had agencies at Disney, but I didn't know too much about it. But I was kind of intrigued and I went for an interview at an agency called BMP DDB, who are now called Adam and Eve. And uh, yeah, it was just a bit of a moment, really. It was full of sort of madcap geniuses and very strange and wonderful environment, one that Dr. Zeus would have definitely approved of. And I just thought, crikey, I feel at home. You know, I can be myself. And that was something that... I probably hadn't been able to do. And then from then on, really just tracked my way through advertising, got really interested in all the changes in the media landscape, particularly um, around the sort of mid-90s when the internet first started uh, blossoming. We set up what is now Tribal DDB out of BMP at the time in 1993, doing interactive TV trials in car parks in Cambridge and stuff like that. And I just got really interested in media and I was very lucky to get a job as a, a PhD who were quite an enterprising creative media company and I became MD there. And then there I got the entrepreneurial bug. So that was a bit of a turning point for me. I think it was at a time when dot-com, I remember somebody coming in saying, I've got this amazing product, we're selling shoes online. And on paper, this kid was like, I don't know, a multimillionaire. And I thought, oh my goodness, how can you sell shoes online? That's really, really strange. And at the time, this was, I just thought, crikey, if he can do it, anyone can do it, you know? And that was a liberating moment and the sort of start of Naked, which was a, a beautiful journey for me and friends and a band of us. And, you know, that took me all the way through to 13 as an entrepreneur. I didn't think I was ever going to do and uh, sold that business, joined Karma Armour, went on the same journey again, leading to another entrepreneurial journey and then into a huge company where I am now, which is uh, Accenture. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've enjoyed it. And it's just sort of the twists and turns along the way, I guess, you know, sort of it's connected for me just about. It, uh, what what a, a full and rich career and it actually sounds like you've had a, a lot of fun. I'm, I'm wondering, actually, when I was at 118118, whether... Uh, we probably connect almost yeah. to that point. Yeah. yeah. Um, right. So, so um, incredible, first, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what a what great yeah. times. At the very yeah. beginning of that, you said um, you talked about being exploratory. Yeah. So th these things tend to get wired in quite young. C can you sort of have you got any sort of childhood memories or anything which you think sort of led yeah. to that exploratory yeah. nature? I think so. Yeah. I remember um, certainly in sort of art, culture and music, which are sort of adjacent creative industries. I remember my dad um, is an artist, designer and a jazz musician. So I always had that influence of just things that I didn't quite understand around me. And um, I think um, I, I always wanted to just sort of keep learning and uh I joined this thing at my grammar school and I went to a grammar school in High Wycombe, which was called Vulture. And Vulture was a group of people that just literally did abnormal cultural stuff. 
stuff. I was probably about 12 or 13. You know, so you'd go to theatre, you'd go to mime, you'd go to classical music, you'd go to a rock concert. But it was just always about sort of opening your mind to new stuff. And, you know, I think the, the moral of the story for me has been, you know, you can be good at your job, but if you're not open to new stuff, particularly probably with the pace of, I don't want to talk all the cliches, but, you know, things are moving quite quickly at the moment, very dangerous and worried about being cliched. I think if you're not open to the new stuff, you you kind of get displaced a bit along the way, and that's when you get into a rut. So I've always found, you know, obsessed with new things you don't understand as a sort of motto for life um, has sort of been really good for me. It's kept me on my toes. And it means that even though I'm a 50-something, grey, whatever, old man now, I I sort of feel young in my soul and spirit, you know, if that makes sense. It certainly does, John. And, um, you know, so what, what I find fascinating about your career is that sometimes, you know, you, you're a complete corporate, you know, working for one of the largest organizations in the world today, yeah. but yet have gone on a number of entrepreneurial journeys too. Sure. And quite often people tend to pigeonhole people into being an entrepreneur sure. or being a corporate guy. And clearly that's not been the case. Um, so how do you view those sides of the coin yeah. and being able to transition from an entrepreneurial way of life into sure. perhaps a structured way of life? How, does, how do you navigate that? It's a great question, Richie, because I've thought about this a lot. And I think I like being at the sort of apex of change, particularly in marketing services. The thing that's excited me the most has been the um, changing dynamics in the industry. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm unashamedly a little bit of a rabble rouser. I like being on the edge of change and trying to drive that change rather than sitting in the middle and feeding off it, if that makes sense. And um, I think when I look at my career, every opportunity that I've grabbed has been, well, bar maybe one, but every, including the essential opportunity has been to drive change. And I also, I think another real motivating thing for me is um, when I sort of see things not working very well. Um, this is an entrepreneur mindset in a way, but when I see things not working very well, I'd sort of rather be a sort of pioneer at the front of making it better, even knowing you often stumble and fail. And actually the journey within interactive entering marketing services in itself is a very bold move. And I think um, I, the reason I can connect with that journey, even though it's in a huge company, is we're once again trying to um, change an industry, hopefully for the better. Um, and it feels entrepreneurial and challenging, even though it's in a huge huge enterprise so that would be my my common thread there mate if that makes sense you often uh, you often say that um, Accenture Interactive is the world's biggest most best funded startup yeah well I think um, you know um, entering a new, new space you know I think you know when 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 uh, when Karmarama, when we were sort of a year, year or two years before we joined Accenture Interactive we noticed that a lot of our clients were partnering us up with consultancy services particularly in the in the digital space and we work with IBM and Deloitte and we could see what they were really good at and we could also see the skills they were missing around sort of thinking about you know customers and proposition and purpose and brand um, and it was sort of you know even though it's sort of in those days it was a little bit of a clunky alliance we could see that if you could could combine 
business acumen with, um, you know, technology and creative thinking, there was potentially another journey. And that was what excited us at Karma Armour. And I think with Interactive, that's my Ocado shop, by the way, buzzing as we speak. But with, with Interactive, what we've tried to do really is to sort of bring those skills together to sort of say, well, actually, could we reimagine what, a, an experience could look and feel like for a customer. And I think that's really, really exciting. So, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, what we've done is we've built a sort of dream, if you like, which is, and the dream is based on a fundamental human truth, which is consumers don't like the edifice of brands and the reality of poor service. You know, there's a huge disconnect. And I've been obsessing about that way before Accenture going, well, how do we join? In the dots. In fact, Naked was really about trying to connect experience, but in a communication way, um, you know, and, and and trying to bring it all together where you can sit with clients and sort of try and break down the silos and join things up has been a, an incredibly complex but really interesting journey. And again, I think on on message for the future of our industry. I think so. Uh, yeah, we've acquired, yeah. Sorry, is it this? A beautiful e-commerce arc to this conversation, talking about yeah. somebody selling shoes online and then the Ocado yeah. delivery arrives. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, so, um, you, I mean, you, you you could probably say, or it'd be safe to say, you are sort of at the extreme end in terms of having a growth mindset, you know, fixed yeah. mindsets, growth yeah. mindsets. Um, and so you pivoted and, and had a lot of success. But I'm sure it hasn't always been perfect. Um, often it's the case yeah. that very, very successful people have had their, their highs and lows. So yeah. it may be helpful just to hear some of the times that haven't been so brilliant and how you've learned, well, adapted and pivoted. Well, I think like one, uh, one when I was at MTV, I got offered a job at Disney and uh, I was working for an American guy at MTV. And he said, John, I know you really well and I know what you're into and I'm telling you, you won't like the culture at Disney. So there's nothing wrong with Disney, just to raise my hand, a fantastic company. But I remember joining Disney and two weeks in thinking, oh my goodness, I'm in the wrong place. And it was literally two weeks in and I didn't know what to do. I was really young. Um, I was like panicking that I've made a really bad call. I almost wanted to run back to MTV and see if they take it. I mean, I persevered and I learned a lot, but first lesson, negative lesson would be the culture of the environment. And I've always kept that in my pocket. You know, whenever I've occasionally gone for interviews, I sit in reception and watch the vibe and the culture and the people and really study the culture of companies to see if I can swim or whether I'm going to sink in it. So that would be one. Second one would probably be, Honestly, starting your own company is a devastatingly negative and euphoric experience at the same time. So, you know, an average week at Naked, you know, you would, because you take failure so personally, um, you would literally be, I, you know, I would be ecstatic if we won something or produced something brilliant, literally broken to my knees. And I wasn't ready for that, um, you know, the, the swings of highs and lows of, entrepreneurialism I got used to it but that was a real journey and then the last one sadly is uh you know my, my founding partner at uh, Naked John Harlow passed away in 2013 and he was way too young he was 43 years old and you know it absolutely broke me I mean it was one of the reasons I left you know it was like you know the guy who you set a company up with dies and it just doesn't make sense anymore and I think that whole mortality thing you know um uh, 
swings all the way into this COVID world, which is just being conscious of what you really care about, what you really stand for, what you really believe in. And, you know, I'm sure coming out of COVID, many, many more people, I think, will have grounded themselves in what's important to them, both personally and professionally. So I don't know whether that answers that's a few negatives. Yeah, yeah that, I mean, that's yeah, th- thanks, Yakanda. I mean, you've covered a broad range of things there, but I think it will all be very, very relatable. Yeah. Um, just just that um just a one more follow-up you mentioned that moment of panic yeah we've all faced that where yeah. we think we've made a mistake you know what, how, look, looking back how do you think you sort of processed and dealt with that moment and yeah I, I think I thought you know there was somebody on my shoulder saying you've made a mistake but give it a really good go because you're going to learn something which I think was remarkably mature considering how reckless I was at that age um you know, I was in other aspects of my life, I would have just walked out, but I, I, I stuck with it. And I sort of in my head thought 16, 18 months, I'll learn a lot. And I did, but it felt like going back to university and studying a subject I didn't want to study, if you know what I mean. Um, <clears throat> I think the only other way looking, I've thought about this a lot. If I'd been the older version of me in that point of view, I literally might have run my old boss back up two weeks in and gone, look, I've really messed up. I think either getting out very quickly or treating it as a sort of entrenched study period of a lesson in life, think doing something in the middle and just whinging and moaning and getting really unhappy would have been the wrong thing. But I could have probably flipped out straight away, to be honest. Yeah. That's a lovely lovely thought, the thought of, you know, act quickly or learn a lesson. I think that's a sort of, you know, thought of people in in similar shoes. Yeah. Um, I, first of all, I want to, my condolences to obviously that very tough moment in time for you. And, and thank you for sharing that. I know that's probably not easy about your partner. So, so that's, you know, thank you for that. Um, you know, you talk about the, the entrepreneurial journey being this constant sort of swinging up and down. Yeah. Um, over time, I mean, I'd love to hear about some of the ways that you were able to cope with that sort of that roller coaster journey. And I'm sure people listening in may well be going through a similar sort of journey in different aspects of their lives. How do you cope with that sort of constant roller coaster? that you you may be on and then just as a follow-up to that is does over time because you have to have those coping mechanisms do the highs never get that high anymore when you say win a massive account because and do the lows kind of almost kind of not get that deep because it's a coping mechanism sure i mean brilliant questions again i mean i think when we started there was literally just three of us three men on a boat on the thames trying to so i think you know your stability isn't there you don't have the resources you don't have the team below you so you feel literally every bump in the road and it's incredibly personal i think we were lucky with naked that the company grew we got to hire some brilliant people we got to open in 16 different geographies around the world and what that meant was we got this underpinning and stability. So if you imagine it being a little boat on the ocean, it started like this. We were just getting tossed around in the waves. And then generally we became a little bit more like a liner where, you know, you can, you can manage the ups and downs a lot better. So I think, you know, that, that worked. I think the highs, that's a really good point. I mean, I think the highs, I would say I've got, I still love the highs of our industry and there's moments which are just, you know, that feeling doesn't go away, but I've got much better at managing the lows. So I think in truth, you know, in life, what I've come to the conclusion is you can't control everything, you know, there are merit. So that comes a little bit with maturity. So I've probably got better at dealing with 
the 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 lows but the highs still feel incredibly special and i think for your own psychology and uh, mental well wellness you kind of can't take everything so intensely personally because it it just uh you know constantly torturing your soul because something gone wrong isn't really a healthy way to lead your life so i'd say the highs are still there the lows i've got better at managing really I love that thought that so we all have an imposter syndrome, but you know to oh. offer the lows, but still really realise the highs. What a great balance yeah. if, if yeah. you can achieve it. Um, ch- changing tack slightly, you, you've talked quite openly about the the balance or maybe the lack of balance between science and art in creativity yeah. within marketing. Yeah. You know, so in this world of programmatic and AI and all blah blah blah, yeah. um, which I suppose you'd be interested in because it's new technology. Oh. What, yeah. what what is the balance there? I just think I just think generally things are out of balance. I mean, you know, you're way more expert, you two, in this than I am. But I think what sort of broadly happened was the creative community, in my humble opinion, didn't modernise quick enough. You know, they sat a little bit on a pedestal whilst at the same time there was a huge growth in direct uh, ways of talking to a customer that were highly accountable. And I think, you know, we have... Uh, leading lights in the creative industries that do uh, sing from the rooftops about the effectiveness of brand building and long-term creativity. But I feel we got outshouted by, um, you know, uh, people that were far more numeric at precisely a time where marketing in a positive way was trying to elevate to the top table and really prove its worth. We couldn't, as a creative community, provide the tangible proof that would get the CMO elevated to a CEO of a company. And, you know, Google and the likes could provide that data point. And as a result, I think we've gone out of equilibrium, if I'm honest. I think we've gone too far the other way, and that is really problematic for brands, and both in terms of brand building, but also service design. I feel like uh, things have sort of commoditized a lot. And when customers can't see the difference between products and services your category just commoditizes and and drops Um, so what one of the reasons I'm so excited to you know a lot of people within Accenture are very 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 um, left brain you know they're very analytical very rigorous all the AI models very involved with the platforms and what I've been trying to do and it's my personal crusade but also many of us in the creative community is to ensure that that technology and that knowledge is used for good and can elevate creativity to the next level rather than sort of be a natural suppressant do you know what I mean and so you know I think the future has to recalibrate things have to even out otherwise I just think you know um, Amazon will win (laughs) you know I mean you know white label products will rule the roost and suddenly marketing and creativity will go into a tailspin that it can't recover from so I think a creativity insight platforming brands behaving with purpose telling beautiful narratives through all the channels available to us that's why people affiliate with brands we know that so that moment has to come in the digital age and it hasn't come yet in my humble opinion so I don't know whether that answers your question I mean I feel bad because you know a lot more about this than I do but that would be my creative lens on it in that we need a new rebirth of creativity fully embedded and fledged in the digital environment that we operate in so so John I, look I love yeah. I love that answer by the way and I think it's absolutely bang on to to the truth of of where things need to move to um, we have a question from the audience that I'd like to pitch on which is sort of a bit of a follow-up 
and looking into a bit of that sort of crystal ball. Um, but talk specifically about, say, some of the media choices in marketing. So what do you think will be some of the next big things in relation to media marketing or maybe media platforms? Um, I think, um, well, the one thing, and again, I, I, this is you know, aimed at sort of students predominantly, so I don't really want to get too technical. But one thing that's been very interesting has been uh, brands needing uh, platforms where they can talk more openly and widely with the community of people who they serve. And I think um, the sort of, we've talked for a while about the growth of owned media, but in the past owned media was kind of a website where you could transact predominantly with a product or a service. I think there will be a, a, a big growth in that platform between your brand and your product becoming a, a much more uh, connected, advisory, entertaining, useful experience. You know, there'll be other bits. And, you know, in the past, I remember talking to packaged goods or, you know, fizzy pop through to chocolate, and they'd say, no, 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 we'll never have that experience in the middle. I mean, in finance, I think that you, you guys have always tried to provide advisory stuff in the middle. But, but I actually think that's not true. I think almost any category can provide something that sits between their brand and the product delivery that can assist or inspire or support the customer. But I don't think it's yet articulated enough. So I think that kind of owned media space will go from being sort of a, a, a you know a necessary evil in an e-commerce funnel to being a fully fledged um, exciting, creative, informative environment that will actually elevate brands a lot more. I think. Yeah, um, you, you mentioned the risk, a genuine risk of losing losing creativity. Yeah, that that does definitely strike yeah. a chord. Um, but you also talked about the the possibility of creating beautiful narratives. That was a lovely expression in in and of itself. Who who do you think's managed to succeed in doing that in the last couple of years? Maybe. Um, I mean, in, in terms of brands, I I think you know there, there's there's you know, loads of people who've succeeded, but probably sporadically, not consistently. So I'm a studier of the, the work in the world and I spend hours going through the sort of Can Lion archive. I'm probably a bit of a train spotter as well, which is another confession. And, you know, there are pockets of brilliance everywhere. I mean, you know, almost the list of brands is too long, but there isn't a consistent successful model. Whereas I think if you look at, the history of creativity, you know, initially print and the art of writing and copy in the sort of 40s and 50s became, you know, an exponential, brilliant platform for brands. And then TV became this brilliant platform for brands where, you know, uh, an era, I just think at the moment, this this new era of storytelling in the digital environment is still a little bit unclear. And I think in the as long as creativity and technology can now fuse, ideally around sort of, you know, something quite purposeful and meaningful for the customer, I think we haven't yet seen what that next wave of the creative evolution would be. I'm not dodging your question because I just don't want to get into sort of cliche case studies. I mean, one that, not trying to plug us, but one I absolutely love that uh, we, 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 are one of my agencies in Denmark won the Grand Prix at the Eurobest this week, and uh, which is the can of Europe, and it was for IKEA. 
Um, and it was a beautiful uh, campaign called uh, IKEA Resale. And what they did was they took a number of things. They took the purpose of IKEA, which is to democratize um, furniture and to make sure everybody in the world can have affordable, high-quality furniture with an environmental crisis of, you know, stuff on scrap heaps. And they said, look, you know, let's create a platform for our customers to sell on their products from their homes to other people. We will give them, you know, uh, some financial commitment to buy into new products within IKEA, but we'll create a new platform, which is called the, the IKEA Resale. So we did that initially in Denmark. It was on track with IKEA's mission and brand. It had a strong creative element. It had a technology platform in the middle, and it was hugely successful. And the, the sign of a successful campaign to me nowadays is when other countries just pick it up and plug it in. So we did it initially in their homeland, or well, it's, it was actually Denmark. They were based in Malmo, but you know, very close across the bridge. Um, and then. And then now it's been rolled out into 30 countries. And I, I love that because, and I'm saying that rather than the Nikes and the thing, Legos and stuff that everybody talks about, just because it's personal to me. And because I think it's a sort of little glimpse of what the future can hold for great marketing, you know, and creativity. You know, John, you've given us so many nuggets of what the hint to the future could look like. And by the way, you've totally opened my mind when it comes to the trends around D to C and how actually this owned media can transform into some exponential experiences. And, and I thought that was a really, really rich insight, particularly looking at where the market is today, but actually where it can be in the next sort of decade. So I thought that was a really, really cool thing. And, and that's something that's going to stay with me. Um, I'd like just to turn to, to Richard Brown's question. Um, so Richard is a, a through and through brand, brand man. Um, so his question is around, so what do you think you found hardest when talking about brands and creativity to those more left brain people um, that you now work with, let's say, at Accenture, for sure. example? Um, well, I think, um, I think it's, uh, we talked about the value of creativity to uh, business outcomes, and that is an ongoing debate. I think the challenge is, is you know, great creative ideas often uh, start uh, a conversation that goes all the way through multiple channels and, uh, you know, but they very rarely take the credit they deserve for the conversion. That would be my humble opinion. But I think within the organisation, I think it's the time it takes to develop ideas is probably the hardest thing for left brain people to understand. So, you know, left brain people come from systemic thinking, and I've learned to hugely value and deeply understand and appreciate left brain thinking. Left brain thinking is about um, creating models uh, of repetition, you know, where you can do something really, really well, and then you can repeat that and scale it. You know, that is the language of the, the left brain. The language of the right brain is about sort of baking fresh ideas every day and the fact that you know mark's business needs a different idea from a, another financial or insurance business and actually that is the way branding and creativity works so i think probably very practically the struggle if it's a struggle the thing that i spend my time sort of constantly explaining to my left brain partners and they really are brilliant partners is you know we can't just pluck it down, we can't systematize it, we can't put it in a box, it would be wrong to repeat it. I mean, you know, you want something should feel bespoke and ownable for the client. And I think that would be very practically the challenge is beyond the efficacy of where creativity adds to the bottom line. Um, just to, to follow up on the left brain, yeah. right brain thing, yeah. uh, I, I'm an active campaigner around neurodiversity, which yeah. is 
of yeah, the, the DNI conversation. So, um, and, and you know, for, for people who are not so familiar, this bucket's up dyslexia, dyspraxia, yeah. Yeah. autism, ADHD. Um, and um, many of the greatest minds the world's ever known have had yeah. brains that are wired differently. differently yeah. And I, I, I just wanted to you know, sort of, if, if that's a perspective that comes into the conversation in, yeah. in your travels within Accenture, is it a thing yet? I think I think it's definitely a thing. I mean, you know, I have a neurodiverse son who has nearly all of those conditions and I've watched him blossom and I am like you, a huge, what I love about the way his brain works, just because I spend a lot of time with him, is if he, he can pick up on anything and can create a depth of knowledge that's almost unparalleled very, very quickly. Um, and uh, I believe that a lot of those people, brains and wiring do end up on Microsoft campuses and do end up going into very uh, left brain pursuits because there's something about sort of solo deep work that kind of feels comfortable for people with some of those neurodiverse conditions we talked about. The point that I think is very interesting is how those people can play in the creative space. And uh, I've got a friend of mine who has set up a uh, very modern PR company, and uh, she's recognised that to do deep specialist PR, you need that kind of plough-like mentality. And so she's setting up a team of neurodiverse sort of researchers and thinkers who can take that level of expertise to the next degree to provide better briefs for creativity. And I think that is equally interesting because my slight worry is I look at my kid and I kind of go, can't see him on Microsoft campus, but I could see him in a gaming company, you know, or whatever. And so I don't, I think the challenge for neurodiverse people is one, they hugely got a role. They need different treatment both in terms of interviewing and then recruitment and sustaining their well-being within the workplace but you know it would be a shame if we just pigeonholed them all into left brain pursuits you know i do think they've got a lot more to offer again i don't know if that answers your question but yeah i mean it's um i think it's it is the two extremes to the yeah. extreme and then of course it's making the whole thing work but i'm yeah. just remembering uh, kate stanner's uh, global yeah. creative director at yeah. sarchi saying that she believed that more than half of her team yeah were dyslexic in some way shape Absolutely. or form because yeah, of the, sort of the, the the radical ideas the freedom of thought yeah. um, so yeah i mean i think it's for me i feel very positive that it is emerging as a conversation yeah. and more people are getting uh, better yeah. better educated on the value that university yeah. brings yeah that's brilliant just i'm going to ask perhaps a cliche but really practical question sure. on the ground around creativity sure uh, you know, people are always talking about this and some people find that creativity is a rather nebulous concept and we kind of all say we should be more creative. But actually, practically speaking, are there things that we could be doing in our organizations as individuals to harness creativity, to become more creative, um, to get those creative juices flowing? What would you? Yeah, I think, um, oh, crikey, I mean, where to start? I mean, if you're talking about client organizations or just people generally, I think um, what doesn't happen enough is uh, getting genuinely, it's an obvious thing to say, but into the shoes of the consumer. It doesn't happen enough. You know, I speak to clients all the time that are obsessive about their internal structures and the way their products and services are organized and they're geniuses on their own patch, but they don't spend enough time sort of literally jumping out of that and critiquing it from a consumer point of view. And even with all the data and research, they don't do that as a pursuit. So that would be one. Second thing is, I think, 
you know, I, I work with a lot of people in the creative industries who aren't interested in broader creativity. And I think that's very stunting. So, you know, when I was in New York, I was quite shocked at how sort of factory like in some cases creativity can be, you know, I used to desperately try and take our whole office to gigs and galleries and shows because I'm a great believer in the adjacency of creativity and you know where where you you know what you see from uh, our exhibition or a movie or a concert will inspire something in your brain to rewire it slightly so that'd be a second observation <clears throat> third observation I think would be having more free-flowing um creative sessions around the brand and the business and potentially a loftier purpose without business imperative. So I encourage all of our clients at least twice a year to luxuriate in a couple of days of complete free-flowing creative thinking around growth and the customer. And literally the only moral to the story, the only thing we pin in the middle is the purpose of the company. So all business objectives go away and it's incredibly cathartic. And I you know, firsthand, I can tell you from CMOs who I work with, they say it's the biggest lifeblood and inspiration. It gives them ideas for years to come, but you have to unshackle it from the day to day. You have to make it relevant to your company and be, you know, like that IKEA idea. It has to align with what your company stands for. But it's very refreshing sometimes to take the straight jacket off. <laughs> And to really, for clients to spend time with creative people, you know, without the protection of account management and structures and tissue meetings, just to free flow it. So there'd be three suggestions, mate. Well, John, you've already had uh, Saffron come back and say that she loves the third idea around that. So perhaps she's going to preempt that at, at Santander. So thanks. Oh. Um, uh, John, I can say I've, I've never really been taken to gigs and stuff by any of my bosses. And it sounds like working for you would be a lot of fun. Um, and maybe I've already answered the question, but if, if you could kind of clone yourself and work for yourself, you see what I mean? Yeah. You are your boss. Yeah. Not, yeah. not in the sense of I run yeah. my own business, but literally. Um, yeah. what, what, what would be the best and worst things about working for you, if you take my meaning? Yeah, I mean, well, I know the worst. <laughs> I mean, de definitely the worst is, you know, like, uh, you know, I probably am neurodiverse, if I'm absolutely honest with myself. I mean, I'm, my brain sort of runs away with me and I'm like down, you know, I'm not particularly structured. So working for me at times is an absolute nightmare, particularly if you want, you know, to have structured relationship and, you know, understand quite where the direction's going. And I also am hugely self-critical about the fact that I'm in one place and I kind of almost expect people to have got to the same place as me, you know, and it's a great criticism in the way my brain works. I've also accepted that it, it can also be the good things, you know, uh, but that articulation between where I, where I am and where I want my team to be is sometimes my, my floor and I can see it would be very frustrating for people. But, but I think the, you know, on the positive, I think, um, <clears throat> you know, people say, well, what's your best bit of advice or whatever, or what would be the way you work that people could model and learn from? I just think it goes back to what we said earlier, which is don't worry about new things like dive head on into them and work them out. And, you know, I've had, I've done talks at schools, colleges, universities, and they say, what's your one bit of advice? And I always just say, just love the new stuff, particularly if you're going to go into creativity or marketing, because if you don't love the new stuff, there will be a point in your career where you get stuck. 
where you kind of realise your knowledge has plateaued, the world's changing around you, and you start to feel paranoid. And I think that's when the bad behaviours come in. And, I, you know, I see it a lot with my teams, with my clients. You know, you just know that they're sort of stuck. And I think if you can open your mind where everything new and challenging motivates and drives you, and it's a mindset shift that I've got that I would love to share you're you're gonna keep going and keep growing and keep finding new exciting opportunities i, I believe you know john I'm, I'm i'm really sad to say we're sort of out of time on this one but i mean what a journey i mean what an absolute incredible journey that you've had i mean entrepreneurial corporate but actually the strand that sort of gone all the way through you know is just this constant curiosity and constant desire to learn the new experiment be out there and of course we've touched on the role of creativity and you know there's no doubt in my mind now that you are you know the the title of king of creativity is very well suited to to you and what you've been able to achieve throughout your career so look on that note and the audience by the way i can see it in the chat absolutely loves you absolutely loves your point of view and what you're bringing to the table so it's with an absolute thank pleasure you. and that i just want to say thank you from all of us for, for spending some time um, with us this morning it, it's been so cool to have you on um, and I genuinely have taken away so many key takeaways. That has been well, no, thank you both for the great questions as well. Thank you, Mark and Richie. I appreciate everybody's time. Yeah, so um, just just to, to add my bit on top as well there, an absolute pleasure and privilege to have you on, John. And that theme of exploration uh, and possibility is is really, you know, really, um, really profound. Uh, massively enjoyed your time having you on the show this morning. Um, so thank you again. And just as a quick outro for next week uh, we've got Jeremy Waite a fascinating guy um, one of the most influential people in the world of marketing and technology um, published author uh, blogger um, climate reality leader we'll find out more about what that entails uh, but I think ultimately the king of side hustles so we'll find out about Jeremy's journey next week so please tune in for the last show of the year and thanks to everybody who's been following through 2020 uh, a fitting way to end the year but for now, thanks again for joining in. Thank you, John, and have great weekends, everybody. Bye.